for those whose tables was on the lower end of the release last week. I feel like we just need to connect in this moment. <laughs> so so we, we are now reconciled. So now I can preach the word and there won't be any hostility towards me, right? <laughs> it's so wonderful to see each and every one of you this morning. Um, I'm extremely, extremely thankful to Pastor Charlie for giving me the honor to speak God's message this morning. He's away actually serving some congregants in, in a service uh, at this time. So continue to pray for him that God would give him strength through this time. Um, so I'm extremely grateful. It's pretty mind-blowing, friends, to believe that this is the last sermon I'll be giving at Evangel Temple. It's, it's something difficult to think through, and I want to be transparent. It's been really difficult when I was given this task to think through, Lord, what is the message that you would lay on my heart? Lord, how do I encapsulate every single thing that you've done in my life at Evangel Temple? How, God, can I honor you and honor these people who have invested so much in, in Lauren and I. And um, it's, it's difficult. If I would say a couple of things, friends, it's truly been a season of growth for Lauren and I in our walks with Christ, in our hearts to disciple others, and in having numerous and numerous of each and every one of you who've taken the time to invest in Lauren and I. So for that, we are extremely thankful. And just before I get into a little more on what God is doing in Lauren and I's future, I just wanted to take the moment to say a couple thank yous. So thank you, Evangel Temple, for every person I got to take out to coffee or a meal. I just want to say that the conversations nourished me tremendously. Thank you, ET, for allowing me to represent our church to Field Elementary. Every student, teacher, smile, blessed me, whether it was bringing turkeys, Christmas presents, shoe cards, or food. It was truly more of a blessing to me, I feel like it sometimes, than them. Thank you, Evangel Temple, for every little pun you let me share with you, even if the fake laughter was only for my benefit. <laughs> Thank you, E.T., for allowing me to share my guitar playing with you and using that to serve Christ. I want to say thank you to the Evangel Temple staff for investing in me, allowing me to ask the hard questions when maybe I didn't know something or understand something, and investing in me to have those safe places to ask. I want to say thank you to the Evangel Temple board and to Pastor Charlie for taking a chance on me to serve and love this community and being blessed by it. It's truly been an honor. And finally, thank you to each and every one of you for your care your love, and your encouragement to Lauren and I, and preparing us for the next season that Lauren and I truly believe God's hand is over. We truly believe in his leading and that great things are in store for the future. Thank you all for being encouraging representatives of Jesus Christ. We're grateful for each and every one of you. So I'd love the opportunity to tell you guys a little bit about Lauren and I's call this morning, but before I do, I'd like to say happy Chi Alpha Day. I don't think the Lord could have come up with any more strategy than that. So the last Sunday in September is known throughout the Assemblies of God as Chi Alpha Day. I was, when I found that out, I was like, wow, Lord, you're just throwing some funny curveballs, aren't you? <laughs> Giving me the opportunity to share my heart on Chi Alpha Day. So I think that's pretty strategic by the Lord. But let's open up with this. So why do they call it Chi Alpha? You know, is this some strategic way to trick students into coming to a Christian fraternity when they come to the campus. So Chi Alpha, do I pay my dues to them, or how's this look? Um, so Chi Alpha 
comes from this. Each and every one of us who takes on the identity of Christian becomes Christ's ambassador, or Christu apostoloi in Greek, which they shorten to the first letters chi and alpha, or xa. So this isn't some kind of bait and switch plan, friends, I promise. There's, there's a reason it's chi alpha. So chi alpha's vision statement, friends, is this. We are a spirit-empowered, diverse community of believers on university campuses declaring in word and lifestyle our faith in Jesus Christ, equipped to fulfill our purpose in God's global plan. And the mission they use to accomplish the vision is reconciling students to Christ, equipping them through spirit-filled communities of prayer, worship, fellowship, discipleship, and mission to transform the university, the marketplace, and the world. Isn't that powerful? What a vision. Can you fathom the world when God has gotten all of these single people from a campus to be reconciled to transform every bit of this world? What a powerful vision. So in the context of Lauren and I's call, there's a university that happens to be right down the road from us. It's called Missouri State University. Some of you are probably more known to it as SMS. Um, I'm not going to say how many years ago they changed that because I love you guys and don't want don't to bring up any numbers today. But the context of our call for Missouri State, there is around 26,000 students at Missouri State University. Now, within this 26,000 students, there's 26,000 students who've possibly been in youth groups in Springfield or other churches They've never touched a church, some of these others, or had an experience with the gospel, or as Pastor Dick was saying, around 600 international students who have come from other countries, whether, like you said, it be Saudi Arabia or China or others. And I want to say this. This is one of the things that I find to be incredibly strategic by the Lord. Where do you find a melting pot ministry of retaining the investment you made in youth. Now keep in mind with this, there are students who are stepping onto a campus whose faith is now being tested, possibly the first time. You imagine when you're finally away from your home family system where they're encouraging you daily, now you're on your own. Now it's time to put faith to practice. So it's an opportunity for us to come around those who've maybe grown up in youth ministries and say, hey, we're going to retain this investment that was made in each and every one of these youth students so that they don't waver when they step on the university campus. Where do you have the opportunity to reach the lost of students who wouldn't possibly ever consider touching a church, but might be confronted with the fact that there's a gospel on the secular university where they can be confronted with the element that there's a God who loves them and cares for them, and we can bring that news. Where do you have the opportunity to create reverse missionaries? And what I mean by that is of those 600 students who might come from these different countries, you can create a disciple in some of these students who will go back to places we might never have the opportunity to enter with the gospel. But if you create a disciple of an international student who goes back home with the gospel, they can create disciples when they go back home. You've created a reverse missionary. What an opportunity. And also future leaders of America. We all know that, hey, in college, wonderful things are happening. Leaders are being developed. So this is such a unique melting pot where all of these single things are being brought together. And while it's such a strategic mission field, 
This is some of the issues that are taking place, friends. On the university, these students have a lack of examples of godly people. It's not an everyday occurrence that you hear good news normally on a secular university. Another issue is sin is not being challenged, and rather than being challenged, it's actually being applauded. People who are celebrating, you went out and drank how much last night? Wow, way to go. You know, this is not being challenged, this kind of culture. And identities are being lost in the students who have grown up in youth ministry, grown up in these opportunities to have a foundation, but they're losing their identities because they're not finding any community who's encouraging them. So with no godly community and community being made at the cost of fitting in for a you know, a bad cultured fraternity or sorority, we're losing so much of the investment. So God, in his wonderful strategic plan, has given us this amazing, amazing opportunity in this amazing field to find and make fruit for the future to come. It needs workers. It doesn't need just workers but it needs an ambassador of Christ, ambassadors of Christ, to bring transformation from God to give these students opportunities to find Christ. And I believe God really paints an excellent picture in 2 Corinthians of what an ambassador of Christ looks like. So let's go to the text and let's look through 2 Corinthians together today. We're gonna to be in chapter five. And while you're getting there, I'm just gonna give you a little background of what's happening here. So the book of 2 Corinthians has been known by some scholars as Paul's most personal document. In this, he gives quite an opening to his inner life. And if you know Paul, he's, he's pretty often to be able to applaud his, his Pharisaic background. He's like, I have a lot of knowledge. You know, I, I like to say his, his personal accolades. But in this letter, I feel like Paul gives you such an, an intimate picture of his heart for ministry. And a large part of this letter in 2 Corinthians actually arose from some of the challenges that were taking place due to some false teachers who were coming in and trying to cause some division within this church. So some of the themes that you'll know throughout 2 Corinthians are ministry responsibilities, the heart of the good news, calls to holy living, and the need for generosity. But today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians 5. And just a little heads up, in some of the immediate context before our text, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 18, it really illustrates the power of the gospel shown by Christ is done through our weakness it's his power that brings transformation, not ours. So with everything moved forward, just remember in the immediate context, this is the transformative work of Christ, not human, okay? So let's go to the text. Let's read 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 10. For we know that when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, that is when we die and leave this earthly body, we will have a house in heaven an eternal body made for us by God himself and not by human hands. We grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing. For we will put on heavenly bodies, we will not be like spirits without bodies. While we live in these earthly bodies, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we want to die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we want to put on our new bodies so that these dying bodies will be swallowed up by life. God himself has prepared us for this, and as a guarantee, he has given us his Holy Spirit. So we are always confident 
even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. So there's a couple of things I want us to take note in the text here, friends. And I want to specifically look at verse 1. It says, We know when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, we will have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God himself. So Paul makes a really interesting contrast here that I can't help but take note of. He makes this contrast between a tent and he makes this contrast between a house. So my first thoughts when I think about tent is I grew up going to Boy Scouts. So we would always bring these tents with us, right? And you'd go out there and the tent, you know, it, it did its job. It would provide some temporary covering, a little bit of protection from the bugs and things like that. You know, it's, it's keeping you a little sheltered and a little shielded. But I'll never forget one of my first encounters when I was at one of my first cookouts with, Ky- with, Kyle, with Boy Scouts is that we had this terrible storm. I remember, I think I was maybe nine or 10, and this tent is just shaking, and it is just moving, and you're hearing the thunder crashing. I remember hearing our, our Boy Scout leaders kind of a couple tents over <laughs> making statements like, we well, might need to get the parents here to get these kids. And all of this is happening, and you think of a tent, and you think it provides a temporary covering, but for longevity, it's not really something that's sustaining. You know, when Lauren and I got married, one of the first things I didn't say is, honey, I got good news. We're going to someday fill a tent together, and this is going to be where we're going to set up our lives, in this tent. You know, we, we talk about having a house someday. So when Paul's making this really beautiful contrast here between the temporary bodies that we live in now as a tent, but the eternal body to come being a house, we can recognize the picture that this isn't something that even we're really hoping to stay in. This isn't a, a place that we hope to be in, you know, a tent that gets raggedy and it gets it gets depleted through a journey. And even that, that illustration to think further of is when you only travel, you take tents, but the home is where your actual home is. You know, think about that. So the tent, as Paul said, when this earthly tent we live in is taken down, he says, then we will leave this earthly body and have a house in heaven, an eternal body made for us by God. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, I've had a lot of problems with some of the houses that I've bought. But I'll tell you this, a house that's made by God is something that's not going to crumble. That's something that's going to be sustaining. So the believer has something really special to look forward to. Although these bodies that we are in right now, they may be weary and they may be wasting away, the believer has this eternal body to look forward to, this house that God has prepared this beautiful thing that the Lord is preparing that won't just be ragged and run down, but will be lasting and eternal. This is what the believer has to look forward to. And he continues this thought through verses two through three. He even says, we grow weary in our present bodies and we long to put on our heavenly bodies like new clothing, for we will put on heavenly bodies. We will not be like spirits without bodies. We long to put this on. The restorative God is going to restore this weary body, and we have something amazing to look forward to. 
But I love how Paul continues this thought forward in verse four. He says, while we live in these bodies, we might groan and sigh, we groan and sigh, but it's not that we wanna die and get rid of these bodies that clothe us. Rather, we wanna put on our new bodies. And here's the deal, friends. I, I think this is important to note. You know, this isn't some kind of Christian death wish that Paul has here. He's not saying, I just want to be done with this. Just throw it in. I'm throwing in the towel. But who doesn't long to be desired to their restored self? Who doesn't desire restoration? So what Paul's saying here is we long to be restored. We long to be completely restored with Christ Jesus. That is our desire, okay? So the next thing to take note is in verses 6 through 8. So... We are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing and not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. See, I love this word confident that Paul uses here. Paul doesn't use this word of so we're kind of sure. We're kind of sure that maybe we know as long as we live in these bodies or, you know, we, we're somewhat, it's, it's a potential. Paul says, we are always confident. The believer is certain of what is to come. This isn't some kind of blind faith that Paul's illustrating here too. This is certainty that Paul is communicating here. We are certain that these bodies, and we know as long as we live in these bodies, we're not actually home with God. And let me tell you something. When you operate out of this kind of certainty of what your creator has for you, when you operate under this kind of certainty instead of insecurity, you're able to face any kind of opposition because you know this is a temporary space. You know this is something temporary and that it's not lasting for eternity. So Paul, when he comes against any kind of opposition, he can thrive under the opposition because he was confident that this was a temporary body that he was in right now. He's not fully home yet. So I think us as believers, whenever we do come against any kind of opposition, we can thrive and have confidence and not be insecure because what God says is true. We can have hope and trust that we have an eternal body to come. This is temporary. This was a temporary thing. So track with me here. In verses nine through 10, he says, so whether we are here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him, God. For we must all stand before Christ to be judged. We will, either receive, we will each receive whatever we deserve for the good or evil we have done in this earthly body. Because of this confidence Paul has, because of the certainty he has that this isn't the eternal body, because of his confidence and uh, his certainty in that, he doesn't just keep that inward as doctrine, but he drives that message forward towards his Christian duty. See, so whether we're here in this body or away from this body, our goal is to please him, Okay. And coming up in the next couple of scriptures, we're going to discuss a little bit more about what the Christian's duty is. But this is the reminder, friends, whether we are here or away from this body, this is a reminder that everything we do should bring God glory. Every single thing we do in this life is to bring God glory and praise. See? But the, re the reminder for us is that there will be judgment before God. 
He's a graceful God who offers restoration and reconciliation. But there's an expectation for the Christian in this life to be faithful to what he calls us to do. Okay? And that's what's going to bring us into 11 through 21. This is what's going to help the Christian understand what is the Christian's duty in, in regards to all of this. Okay? Because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others God knows we are sincere, and I hope you know this too. Are we commending ourselves to you again? No, we are giving you a reason to be proud of us so that you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. If it seems we are crazy, it is to bring God glory. And if we are in our right minds, it is for your benefit. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So going back to this Christian idea of, of doctrine and duty, I want to say this. It's absolutely imperative that the believer operates within both of these things, okay? So here's what I mean by that. We have this knowledge of God. We have this doctrine. We have a foundation. We know what is truth about God. We know what is true about him, okay? But we also have this duty to drive from this doctrine, this idea of what we know about God. We have a duty as Christians to take that and go do something with that. Okay, so it's not just having doctrine, but it's also having a duty. And here's the deal. With doctrine and no duty, where do you have the application? Where do you have the works? Okay, but with having duty and no doctrine, where's your accountability? Where's the foundation of knowledge? Where's the truth? So they both have to work together. It's imperative that you work those two together. And I think verse 11 encapsulates that idea really well. He says, because we understand our fearful responsibility to the Lord, we work hard to persuade others. See, there's a correlation. I understand my responsibility, and I work hard to persuade others, okay? One leads into the other. And because of the fear of the Lord, and this isn't some kind of insecure idea that I'm afraid of God, so because I'm scared of him, I'm going to do this, but rather, it's like Proverbs 1.7 talks about. It's a reverence for God. This is some kind of reverence. And Proverbs 1.7 says, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Okay? So this is a healthy reverence of God. So because of my reverence to God, because I understand who he is and what he is capable of and his mission I must work hard to persuade others. I must be drawn to persuade. But my reverence of God is not persuading people like some Christian car salesman, okay? I'm not out here trying to offer a two-for-one special on salvations, okay? You know what I mean? Like, track with me here. But he says, we persuade others by preaching good news, as Paul even continues on here, with sincerity, with a sincere heart. So I even like his contrast here following this in the text when he's saying, we're not giving you a reason to be proud of so you can answer those who brag about having a spectacular ministry rather than having a sincere heart. 
I think what he's really trying to argue here is that the sincere is more important than the spectacular. And I really think that Paul felt the need to allude to this because I think these false teachers who were coming into the church were trying to come in with all of these spectaculars, all of these wonderful things. But there's obviously the issue here that Paul's alluding to is that their hearts weren't right. There's something in their heart that needed to be dealt with. It wasn't right. So we do this. We have a sincere heart. We work hard to persuade others. And by persuading others, by the way, that is communicating the gospel. We, we read the gospel. We teach them the gospel. We persuade them that Christ is the king, not because of some facade, but because this is the truth that we are certain in. We do this because Paul says Christ's love controls us. We do this because Christ's love controls us. Now, I'll be honest with you. I remember the first time I ever read this, my first thought was, so is God kind of standing back here with a little remote control car and Nick's just being controlled on, the, on autopilot? But I think the way that really encompasses this, and this really helped me when I read some commentaries and talked to some others, but Christ's love controls us. In other words, it drives us. Christ's love motivates us. Christ's love compels us. So because Christ's love compels us, motivates us, drives us, we have this care for others. We're drawn to empower and persuade others because of this motivation, because of this transformative motivation. And why does, Paul, why does this love drive us? The immediate text tells us, since we believe Christ died for all, we also believe that we have died to our old lives. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves, Instead, they'll live for Christ who died and was raised for them. So Christ's love drives us because we've been transformed. We've been completely transformed. We're a new creation. My motives, my intentions, they're no longer the things that they used to be. Christ's love has driven me to something different. It drives us because we're no longer about living for our, for our own intentions, our own satisfaction. We're driven by Christ's love to see others transformed. It drives us because we live for God and not ourselves. This is what Christ's love does in us. It takes us off the selfishness and puts us onto loving and caring about others. It's truly a transformative work. Verses 16 through 21 say, So we've stopped evaluating others from a human point of view. At one time we thought of Christ merely from a human point of view. How differently do we know him now? This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. So some scholars in verse one actually took Paul's interpretation of of his view of people from a human point of view, from his previous um, position as a Pharisee. So he no longer looks at people from the same point of view as a Pharisee. And as I was reading this, I was thinking, 
What was the way that each and every one of you evaluated others before Christ? I, I sat there and I was thinking a little bit, you know, God, how did I evaluate others from a human point of view? What did that look like for me? And for me, but you know, I was 17 when I accepted God. So my view from a, a human point of view is in how I evaluated others was they, they feel a need until they don't. This is, this is the issue with the human heart is we seek that self-satisfaction. But how differently do we see others now because of Christ's transformative love? Paul even says, how differently do we see God now? That's what relationship with God does. How differently do we see him now because of his transformative work? How differently? We're new creations in him. This is what his work does in our lives, okay? And he goes on to say, and this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ, and God has given us the task of reconciling people to him. For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sin so we could be made right with God through Christ. So Merriam-Webster defines ambassador as this. An official envoy, especially a diplomatic agent of the highest rank accredited to a foreign government or sovereign as the resident representative of his or her own government or sovereign. And when you think of an ambassador, they have quite a responsibility, don't they? You have to go and represent the government that you are on behalf of, and you need to know a lot of information about what your government's represent is, what doesn't fly with the government, what does, the things that are okay, the things that aren't okay. You have to have quite a bit of background knowledge, right? It's quite an honor to represent a government. You, you have to have some pretty amazing character to do so. And while that's a really big honor, Paul actually commends the Christian and says, but we're Christ's ambassadors. We are Christ's ambassadors. Each and every one of you is a representative on behalf of the King of Kings. It's an honor to, to represent a government. It's a greater honor to represent God. What an opportunity we have, friends. You represent the King of Kings. You're an ambassador for Christ. What an important, important role. And as an ambassador of Christ, representation is something that's pretty important. We need to be the ones who represent what God's word says. We need to represent what his character is. We need to represent who Yahweh really is, who Jesus Christ is. We need to represent him well. But it's not just about representation. It's about reconciliation as well. It's not just about representing God, but it's about reconciling for God, okay? Because this was Jesus' example that he chose to show us. This was God's hearts, friends, to reconcile people to himself, okay? The text is very clear about it. He, we're Christ's ambassadors because God is making his appeal, not anyone else's appeal, his appeal through us. This is his heart, friends, okay? And representing Christ, guys, should lead to changed lives. I remember really vividly my young life leader when I was a junior in high school. This person who would come into our school 
And at first it was kind of, you know, I was like, why is this 30-year-old coming into our school hanging out with us? He's like a youth pastor. That's how I'd put it. He was like a youth pastor. And he'd come in and he'd sit with us and he'd, he'd build relationships with each and every one of us. And we had the opportunity to get to know him and he got the chance to know us. And I remember him telling me about a God who literally cared about me, a God who loved me, a God who was interested in my life. And I remember I had a lot of questions for him. And he sat with me gracefully and responded to every single question that I had answered every single one of my questions. And because of that, I I decided to give my life to Christ because I sensed that there was a God who was interested in my life. Representing Christ should lead to changed lives. Representation should lead to reconciliation. The disciples' lives were completely transformed because of Christ. When he represented who the Father was and when he came representing the Father's appeals, showing us the right example of who God is, helping us understand who God is, their identities were transformed. This is why he set the precedence for us, friends, to command us to make disciples. See, disciples aren't just decisions. We're making disciples, people whose lives are transformed to transform others' lives. This is why when Jesus had the encounter with the Samaritan woman, He's helping her to see the reconciliation that needs to happen in her life to be reconciled back to God. Jesus was going to a place where Jews were looked down upon, but he went to the field with confidence because he was certain about his work and what his life could do for others. That's why the Samaritan woman left changed. It was an uncomfortable field. The disciples were really trying to get away from it, but Jesus knew that reconciliation needed to happen. It wasn't just that she was reconciled to God. It's that you're seeing reconciliation between Jew and Samaritan. What a transformation. What a transformation. And what an honor it is, friends, to represent God. And friends, this is, this is the burden that Lauren and I feel in our hearts. This is the tension that Lauren and I feel in our hearts that these 26,000 students who are down the road who are uncertain about what their future holds, whose faith may be wavering for the first time being tested, students who will go home to foreign countries possibly without the gospel message. There's a burden on my heart to see that, transformed. There's a burden on my heart to see them being confronted with the gospel message of a God who loves them, who wants to reconcile them back to Christ as though he's making his appeal through us. The burden on our hearts is his burden. He's allowed us to feel that tension. He's allowed us to feel that burden. And just to say, friends, to be there full time, Lauren and I are mandated to raise a full monthly budget to raise our support. And I would just say, if God is laying, potentially joining Lauren and I on our team financially and prayerfully, would you please come talk to me about this afterwards? But the reality is, friends, we have to feel this burden on our hearts, not just to represent God, but to reconcile for God. This picture here is actually more than just a beautiful photo of my wife and that weird guy. Um, <laughs> but this is Strong Hall at Missouri State University. So at Strong Hall, during Lauren's time at Missouri State, she had a religions class that took place in this hall. She had a professor who was Muslim, 
who seemed pretty impartial about other religions that were taking place when they were happening. But the second Christianity came up, the second Christianity came up, she said he got oddly passionate about trying to discredit it. Got oddly passionate about talking about discrepancies in scripture. If this isn't challenged, friends, if there's no representatives, ambassadors of Christ here to confront that, do students just walk away unchallenged, believing every single thing? If we don't confront these issues, what happens? And that's our call, friends. Where are you representing and where are you reconciling? You see, this isn't just a, a message for Lauren and I to go represent Christ on the university campus. This, this is a message for the body of believers. Where are you guys investing not just your doctrine, but also your Christian duty? Some of you might still have, be in the workforce and some of you might be thinking, I have had some uncomfortable work conversations with some of the people I work with. It makes me a little uncomfortable with some of the ways that they talk about Christians. If those thoughts are never challenged, if those thoughts are never challenged or never given an opportunity to hear about the truth, do they just leave unchanged? For those who are in schools, whether investing in students or whether being invested as students, are there students who sit around you who ask these hard questions who maybe you kind of pull back from and say, I don't really want to talk about it. That's a little uncomfortable. You represent God. You are his representative. In your home life, if, if you maybe have a son or a daughter or other family members, an aunt or an uncle or someone who's, who's wavering, they're away from the Lord, do they know what you represent? Do they know what you stand for? And not just that you stand for, but do they know that you're willing to serve them and love them regardless of what's going on in their life? We're not just the ambassadors because we go to the campus, friends. We're all Christ's ambassadors to reconcile as though he's making his appeal through us. This is the transformative work of Christ, friends. Don't take your assignment lightly. Let's respond.